Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Eric. It is great to see you guys. I'm a pastor in training here. Uh, at City Church, and like Kent said, today is Mother's Day, and my mom is here, so I would be a terrible son if I didn't say Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, so she's going to come and sing for, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, that has happened to her before, so that's it's a little triggering, I think. Um, <clears throat> it's totally worth it, though. Uh, so go ahead and open up your Bible, if you haven't already, to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to be there, I'm also going to be jumping around a little bit. Um, but I'm going to have most of the stuff up on the screen for you just to, to save you from flipping all throughout the Bible. But we'll get there in a second. Um, has anybody in the room seen Forrest Gump? Oh, wow. That was more than I thought. All right. How about uh, The Green Mile? Okay. Saving Private Ryan? The Usual Suspects. Yeah, same hands for most of those. That was great. <laughs> I, I like that some of you have great taste, so that's good. Um, but I could keep going with movies like this, but if you have seen all of these movies, you may kind of notice a little bit of a trend. So all of these movies, as well as several others, start with a scene that just makes you wonder what is going on, which makes you try and figure out kind of the bigger picture. And then basically the rest of the film is just like a big flashback or a series of flashbacks to get you back to that point to kind of explain what happened to lead up to that moment. Right, so in Forrest Gump, we see Forrest sitting on a bench at a bus stop. Right, it's an unlikely place for a dramatic story to unfold. Right, the Green Mile, we see Paul Edgecombe sitting in a nursing home watching Top Hat. And Saving Private Ryan, we see an elderly man walking through a cemetery. And we don't even know that it is the Private Ryan yet, which is a huge spoiler. Obviously, he survived. He was saved. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, in the usual suspects, we see Kaiser setting a cargo ship on fire. And in all of these movies, we really have no idea why these things are happening, right? We do not know why these things are happening, but we know that they're a big deal. We just don't know why yet, right? But once we get this flashback, we find out the whole story, everything comes together, right? Everything makes so much sense. So the snapshot of David's life that we're looking at today starts off similarly, we're going to start off with a scene that seems maybe a little inconspicuous or inconsequential or honestly a little strange uh, if we really think about it. But once we get the flashback, we're going to see just how big of a deal this is. And so we're going to be jumping around, like I said, to a few different passages. You don't have to flip all through the Bible. We'll have these up on the screen to get the bigger picture. So our story today does not start with a bus stop, right? It doesn't start with a cemetery or a nursing home, even a cargo ship arson, none of those. Um, our story today starts with a bathroom, a toilet. Yeah, it's great. So let's look at 1 Samuel, chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 1. So it says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So this is taking place while Saul is hunting down David, basically to try to kill him so he won't become king. And this has been going on on and off for four or five years at this point. 
So it says, he came to the sheep pens along the way, a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Right? So you got to love the details of the Bible. It's very, very detailed. Saul is in hot pursuit of David. He is chasing him down. He knows where he is, and nature calls, right? And there's no rest areas or pilots uh, along the road in the ancient Near East, uh, so really the cave is the best you can get. And so he stops. And I don't know how many sermons you have heard in your life about somebody's pit stop, uh, but that's what's happening this morning, so you're welcome. Um, because this is not just an inconsequential trip to the bathroom, right? This is what I would call the most pivotal potty break in Saul's life, the whole thing. So let's keep reading. It says, David and his men were far back in the cave. Instant tension, right? Saul is chasing this man down. He goes into a cave to use the bathroom, and we find out David is in the back of the cave. But to really understand the significance, we need our flashback. Right? So that is what we are going to do to look at the bigger picture of Saul's story up until this point. So let me bring you up on the speed on what got us to where we are. So it's going to take a little while. I think I can do it relatively quickly, and we're going to come back to the bathroom at the end, I promise. Um, so we've touched on this a little bit for the past two weeks. The first anointed king of Israel was not David. I know we're talking a lot about David, but the first anointed king was Saul. And so all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul was out running errands for his dad looking for donkeys. A little strange, I know, but this is what he was tasked to do. And he meets a prophet named Samuel. And so this is the same Samuel that we have talked about a little bit in the past couple weeks. Um, So when Samuel sees him, he realizes that this is the one that God told him would be king. So Samuel anoints him. He basically lets him know, and they do a little private ceremony saying that Saul is going to be king. So it's, going to, it's pretty private. Um, Samuel sends him home afterwards, and he's like, he's going to be king, not yet, but you've been anointed um, until we make this public with a big coronation. So Saul goes home. Uh, his, his uncle asks him what happened on this trip. Saul tells him everything, right? He, he tells him, and he met Samuel along the way. He tells him, donkeys are good. They're great. Found them. Um, he tells him almost everything, right? He, he tells him everything except uh, the fact that Samuel just anointed him to be king of Israel. Which seems like something that might be worth mentioning about your trip, right? That's a big deal. But from the jump in Saul's life in this passage, we see that Saul is marked by a certain degree of insecurity or a certain degree of of. of rejecting what God has to say. He shows an unwillingness to fully trust God, right? He doesn't necessarily trust that God knows what he's doing, and he doesn't want people to know off the bat. We can see that God picked him to be king. He doesn't doesn't even want his family to know. He doesn't want to do what God wants, and so we see this lack of trust clearly a few verses later in chapter 10 at the public coronation that we just talked about. So Samuel is proclaiming to this crowd that God is going to give them what they asked for. He's going to put a king in place over them. So we're going to look in 1 Samuel 10, starting in verse 20. We're going to put this stuff up on the screen for you. So it says, When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So taking Lot's was like uh, drawing straws or flipping a coin. Um, It was just a game of odds, basically. It says, Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. 
Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. So keep in mind, Saul's kingship was already been anointed and predetermined. We know Samuel already anointed Saul. But Samuel is out here in front of all these people, drawing straws basically to give a little showcase of God's sovereignty more or less to everyone. Um, But check this out. It says, but when they looked for him, that's Saul, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. So literally, he's just like hiding in the bags. It's great. Um, have you guys ever had the experience where you can't tell if something really crazy that you think happened actually happened or if it was just a dream? Have you guys ever had that, that situation? Like sometimes I'll wake up in a panic because something happened in my dream, my heart's still racing, and, and I'm super confused because I don't know what's real and what's not. And something really big just happened, and if it did, this has huge implications for me. And so I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Or maybe you've been like really mad at somebody because they did something to you in your dream. Uh, and it was super real in your dream. So you're just not going to let that go, right? <laughs> so this is the moment for Saul when he realized his interactions with Samuel was not just a super weird dream, right? He's like, nope, just a super weird life. Okay. Uh, Saul doesn't want to listen to God. We've seen this happen twice now. He doesn't want to be king. In some respects, he must think that he knows better than God, that he shouldn't be king, even though God said he was going to. But the point is, he doesn't like what God said, and so he's attempting to take matters into his own hands. And so what does he do? He hides in the luggage. It's not not a great tactic, but he tried. So this is a profound lack of trust in God. Saul, like we said, doesn't believe God knows best. He, he, he is reluctant to become king, which honestly anyone probably would be when they were given such a task. But Saul doesn't trust God, doesn't trust that he knows what he's doing. And basically, this just becomes the pattern for the rest of Saul's life. This is just one example. I'll show you a couple more uh, important ones throughout Scripture. So the next one we're going to look at comes from 1 Samuel 13. So this is after his coronation that we just talked about, where he is officially recognized and as king and made king. So after his coronation, Samuel gives Saul explicit instructions from God. And he says, you are to go to a place called Gilgal, and he says, you have to prepare for a battle, and you're going to beat the Philistines there. But... You have to wait for seven days for Samuel to arrive. Samuel says, I'm going to show up in a week. You've got to wait for me so that I can offer a sacrifice, and then I can tell you what God wants you to do. So as a reminder, we've said this before, the primary way that God spoke to his people during this time was through his prophets. So Samuel is giving this command or this instruction to Saul. That is not just simply Samuel saying, hey, this is kind of how I want to do this. This is the authority of God speaking through Samuel, saying, this is what you are to do, a command from God. But the problem is, Samuel shows up a little late. So if we look at 1 Samuel 13, 8, it says, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So Samuel's running late, and the people who have been rallying behind Saul are starting to lose their fervor a little bit. Essentially, he's losing some of his, basically, political momentum. His polling numbers are going down. He's losing the popular, popular vote and the people's approval. And we'll see in a second, he's also worried about the Philistines, that they may attack while his numbers are low. 
so he's posed with what seems like a pretty difficult decision, right? Will he trust God? Will he keep waiting, knowing that Samuel is coming, or will he go his own way? Will he trust God over what he sees in front of him? So keep reading in verse 9. So he said, this is, this is Saul, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. So this is a huge deal. Um, maybe not to us at first reading because of our cultural distance from the ancient Israelite world, but this is really big. So the offering of sacrifices that we see here and how it's done is incredibly significant. And God has been very clear this was Samuel's God-appointed job and his alone in this circumstance. Samuel, with the authority of a prophet, the voice of God speaking through him, told Saul to wait for him to arrive. And does Saul listen to God's word? Does he follow faithfully? No. Does he trust God? He doesn't. He doesn't wait on God's timing. Once again, he decides to take matters into his own hands. Again, a profound distrust in God and a disregard for the things that he says. Saul chooses to do what seems right and what seems sensible in his own eyes. So we're going to keep reading in verse 10. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Perfect timing. <laughs> and Saul went out to greet him. Sam, Saul walks out here to Samuel like, everything's all good, right? Samuel is not fooled at all. It says, Samuel said, what have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So the excuses start flowing, right? Samuel, you don't understand. Right? I know what God said, the people were leaving, right? You were late. The Philistines, they were getting ready to fight. I, I had to. I didn't want to, obviously. I would have preferred not to, but I had to, right? I was basically forced. In essence, he, basically, he was saying, you know, I didn't want to distrust God or disobey God, but my circumstances forced my hand. Right? Samuel, you don't understand. You don't know what it's like. You weren't here. And then in verse 13, it says, You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. So Samuel hints here at what Saul's unfaithfulness is going to cost him. Right? It's the kingdom. So let me show you one more. Uh, we're going to go to 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel, again, comes to Saul, and he says, hey, listen, God sent me to anoint you as king. Remember that? God has a job for you to do. So many, many years before this, if you have read through the Bible or you know some Old Testament history, um, you may be familiar with the story of Exodus. So the Israelites had been in slavery in Egypt, and they were fleeing Egypt after God freed his people from captivity. So they're wandering through the desert. A nomadic, while they're doing that, a nomadic group of plunderers called the Amalekites attacked them. They attacked the Israelites, sought to do evil against them. And so at the time, here were God's people, finally free from captivity in Egypt, wandering, homeless in the desert. And this king of the Amalekites comes 
after the Israelites to raid them and attack them. So Samuel, fast forward to present day, Samuel comes to Saul and says, hey, God remembers that injustice. He remembers the wrong that they did to God's people. And he wants to lead his people to be instruments of justice. That's how he wants to do this. So go and destroy them and everything that they have. All of it. and Leave nothing is the command that he gives him. Um, so as an aside, I know this idea may bring up some questions uh, for some people. And I don't have time to get into all of it. Uh, but if you want to know more about the specific context of what's going on here, um, I can connect you to some resources if that is something that you want. If you want to come and talk to me about it. But what we need to know for today is that God takes sin and God takes injustice and oppression very seriously. That is what is happening here. He will not leave oppression and injustice unchecked because he is good. And if you have ever doubted whether or not God cares about all of the seemingly senseless evil and tragedy that happens in the world, things like this tell us that he does think it's a big deal. He does intend to do something about it. This is how it happened in 1 Samuel. So we're going to look at verse 7 in chapter 15. It says, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So what did God say to do? He said, destroy everything. Did Saul destroy everything? No. Once again, Saul takes matters into his own hands, right? Saul thought he knew better than God in this situation. He thinks, you know, I know God said to destroy it all, but why destroy the good stuff, right? That doesn't seem right. These are good sheep, good cows. We can use them for food. We can use them for clothing. We could even sacrifice them, right? We should keep them. God would love that. And then look what happens when Samuel shows up again. In verse 13, it says, When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And I love Samuel's response. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? <laughs> what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul is busted. It's like he tried to hide them behind the tents. You know, I could see this in a movie, like you just hear the background noise. And Saul's like, what sheep? <clears throat> but then Samuel fills Saul in on what God has to say about it in verse 17. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Right, so part of not trusting God is not believing that he sees more than you do or that he knows more than you know. Or rather, believing that he sees or thinks like you and I. So let's keep reading. Verse 20 says, But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on a mission that the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers 
took sheep and cattle from the plunder, right? The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Do you see what he does again? Samuel, you don't see it. I obeyed, right? It was these other people. They're the ones who disobeyed. They're the ones who took the spoils, not me, which, first of all, is not true. And second of all, it doesn't matter because he's their leader, right? He was supposed to guide these people towards God's will and God's commands, and their actions are his responsibility as their leader. So once again, he shifts blame and claims that his circumstances dictated his disobedience. Saul claims that his circumstances dictated his disobedience. And then he tries to justify it, right? He goes, we're going to sacrifice him, right? That's good, right? I know we took the spoils, but we're going to give them to God in sacrifice. But again, Saul has missed it. In verse 22 of chapter 15, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So essentially he's saying here, God cares way more about your faithfulness than whatever religious show you're trying to put on. It does not matter if your intentions were good or you try to explain that they were. God cares about your faithfulness to his word. Right? There's that old saying that says the road to hell was paved with good intentions, right? It's not about what's doing right in your own eyes, Saul. It's about what's doing, doing what God has said. It's about doing what God has commanded you to do. In verse 23, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. So God doesn't have categories of unfaithfulness, right? He doesn't ignore sin or disobedience just because you don't think it's that big of a deal. He doesn't ignore sin just because it's normal in your culture, because it doesn't seem to hurt anybody. He's not going to look away. Verse 23, the rest of verse 23 says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Because you have rejected him, he has rejected you, is what Samuel says. So Saul's sin, like all sin, has a consequence. And it's the Lord's rejection, it's separation from God. So we're going to pause here, I want to talk about a few things. I promise we're coming back to the bathroom after this, I promise. So everything that we just witnessed in Saul's life might feel a little bit foreign in the, in the specifics and in the details. Fearing becoming a king, offering sacrifices when you weren't supposed to, not wiping out an opposing nation. Those are not things that you and I are likely to step into anytime soon. I hope. I don't think. That would be surprising. But while the specifics of Saul's predicaments might feel foreign, the same option is actually put in front of you and I every single day in hundreds of different ways. Every single day we are faced with the, with the choice of do I trust God and do I do what he says or do I go my own way? Right? Will I trust God or will I go my own way? So will I trust God and what he says about money? Right? 
Well, I trust that it's better to give than to receive and trust that it's true that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also and then live accordingly. Will I trust that? Or will I listen to my own voice? Or will I listen to the voices of those around me that tell me, just keep storing things up, right? Or keep buying stuff for yourself. Will I trust God with what he says about relational hurt and pain? Will I trust him with my relationships when I'm feeling hurt, when I'm feeling rejected? Right? Will I trust God and what he says about reconciliation with others because of his reconciliation with us? Or will I just bail? Or will I just criticize others behind their backs because I don't like how they conduct themselves? Right? Will I trust God with my singleness or with my sexuality? Or will I compromise on what he says so I don't feel so alone? Will I trust that his ways are right and good and true even when I don't understand? I know he's for me. I know he loves me. He'll make sure that I have everything I need. Will I trust that? Will I trust God with my kids? Right? Will I trust what God says about raising a family? That at the end of the day, God's the one that saves my kids, not me. But I'm the one that has the responsibility to shape them. Or will I just take matters into my own hand and just try to micromanage them? Or drive off the other side of the cliff and attempt to be their best friend instead of their parent? Right? Will I trust God with the future? Will I trust that God wants to give good things and does give good things to his kids and that my future is in his hands, even if my circumstances right now aren't what I would prefer, when I don't make as much money as I would like, or I don't have the house or the car that I want, will I still trust that God cares about me? What will I do? Right? It's the dilemma that's put in front of us every single day. It's the, it's the dilemma that's put in front of Saul throughout his life, right? And it's the dilemma that is put in front of David in the cave. So we're back to the bathroom. I told you. So we're back to, to chapter 24. So here's David. He is hidden in the back of this cave. Saul comes in completely unaware. And David has his chance. Right? All he has to do, reach out with his sword, everything causing problems for him. All of the trials and suffering and hardship he is experiencing in his life right now would be over. And he could take the throne. One fell swoop. So let's read verse 4. It says, the men said, David's men, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Uh, so it's worth noting here, as far as we know, God never said that to David. <laughs> Not specifically, but his men are like, this feels like what he's saying. <clears throat> um, so this is David's men and their interpretation of events that are happening right now. And here's David in a moment where he can listen to the voice of the people that are around him. He can do what seems right in their eyes. He can take matters into his own hands. He can kill Saul, take the crown. Or he can trust in God's timing. He can choose to trust in God's ways and let God work out the details of his coronation. Keep reading. It says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. So David says, no, I'm not going to do this, right? While Saul is alive, he is still God's anointed king. I will not take matters into my own hands. David chooses to trust God. Verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. So David pops out of the cave behind Saul, which I feel embarrassed for Saul on a few different levels, right? <laughs> not only was he just using the bathroom and he's got a whole army watching him from behind, but this is a guy he's been hunting for years and he's just like hanging out behind him. <clears throat> Nobody wants someone else seeing that. Um, but David pops out of the cave, and he shows Saul the corner of the robe to display, hey, I could have killed you right here, but I didn't. And notice why. In verse 12, it said, I'll let the Lord judge, I'll let him avenge me, and I will let him be in control. I've trusted him. I'm going to skip down to verse 16. It says, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. So the corner of his robe, clutched between David's fingers, tells Saul everything he needs to know. Right? All of the truth, all of the words that Samuel has said to, to Saul over time, finally came crashing down into Saul's soul. And he realizes the truth. He realizes that David is going to be king. David is God's chosen king. Not Saul. Not Saul's kids. David is God's anointed. And Saul sees very clearly right here, David does not do what he has done throughout his entire life. Right? Whereas Saul continuously and consistently took matters into his own hands, creating excuses and justifications for his unfaithfulness. David did not. 
right? When Saul did what was right in his own eyes, David was faithful, even when the opportunity to expedite the process was right in front of him, even when everyone around him was encouraging him to reach out and take it. David chose faith over fear, right? David chose God's will over his own. David chose trust over distrust. And it's what made him God's man. But here is the reality for us this morning. Um, When it comes to this portion of the life of David, I think that you and I are far more often like Saul than we are David, if we're honest. When given the opportunity, more often than not, I feel like a lot of us take matters into our own hands and we let circumstances dictate our faith. And I think Saul is a picture of each and every one of us in some way. So a lot of the time, we default to doing what is right in our own eyes and taking matters into our own hands, making excuses, shifting blame for our lack of trust and our disobedience. Saul's defenses to Samuel, the things that he says to Samuel in response to his disobedience, mirror that of our own a lot of the time. I know God said this, but... You know, I I know God says where your treasure is, there your heart will be too. Believe me, my heart's with God. I just don't really trust churches with money, you know? I just have a lot of expenses right now. I just, I want to make sure my savings account gets to a certain number first, right? I know God says to pursue reconciliation with humility, but the person hurt my feelings, right? Ultimately, I was right. So they can come and apologize, right? They know where to find me. They can ask for my forgiveness. I know God said that it's unwise to to be dating a non-believer, right? But we love each other. We do. And I I feel like I may be able to change them, and I don't want to be single. And they care about me. I, I know I shouldn't have yelled that thing at my kid this morning like that. But I was in a hurry, right? And they've gotten really annoying recently, right? I know God says to be invested in a community of believers, but sometimes it's just hard for me to be around people. I'm tired. Work has been long recently. My spouse doesn't really feel like going. And I want my kids to play three sports, so priorities, right? So like Saul, we plead, but you just don't understand. You weren't you aren't there. You didn't see what was happening. You don't know the pressure I'm under in my life. And if we're honest, the truth is at the root of every sinful thought, every word, every action that is not in line with God, at the root of every disobedience to God's commands is a lack of trust. Right? It's a belief that God is not to be trusted, that he does not know enough. He doesn't see the full picture. He doesn't see your situation correctly, that your circumstances are different. Your circumstances are an exception, but they're not, honestly, (laughs) right? We see in 1 Corinthians 10 and in other places in Scripture, no temptation has overtaken us except what's common to man. 
common to humanity as a whole. And, and second, I think we distrust God to our own peril a lot of the time. God is not trying to take from you. Right? In the things that he commands to us, in his instructions to you, he is not trying to rob you. He is trying to give something to you, things that are for your joy, ultimately, because he knows how life works. He knows how it works best. And for some of us, sure, life could be really hard right now because we live in a broken world and we currently experience the effects of that brokenness, absolutely. However, I would also argue for some of us, the reality might be life is really hard right now or really miserable at times because maybe you've been choosing to take matters into your own hands instead of submitting to what God says. And I think that happens sometimes. But God can be trusted. He can be trusted. And we know this. We know because there is a true and better David, right? A true and better king who has shown us that he is trustworthy. Right? We have seen that through Jesus, right? God's son. The same reason that Saul could trust David in this instance is the same reason that you can trust God. All right, so look back at verse 17, what we just read. It said, Saul says this to David, you are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You are more righteous than I. So when Jesus was tempted to claim the kingdom another way, besides the way that God had planned and instructed, instructed he didn't. Right? When, when Jesus could have called down a thousand angels to his side to overthrow his enemies. He didn't. He didn't. And he did it because when God had the right to destroy us, he didn't. Right? Some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. That when it comes to the cross, it, it really should have been us up there. Right? Jesus was not the one who deserved that. Jesus did not deserve the cross. We deserve the cross. You and I. But Jesus took it for you. Right? And, and just like the torn cloak of Saul proves that David can be trusted, the torn body of Jesus proves that he can be trusted. Right? God is for your good. And you can trust him. When your future seems uncertain, you can trust him. When life seems out of control, you can trust him. When obedience feels like the costly choice and disobedience more advantageous to you, you can trust him. And when the weight of your sin and the distrust you have for God feels insurmountable or unforgivable, even then, you can trust him. Right? Because David was not the only one who walked out of a cave proclaiming grace. Right? On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of his grave proclaiming grace for you. So will you trust him? 
Right? Will, you, will you turn from trusting your own thoughts, your own ways, your own voice, or maybe even the voices of those around you? And will you trust him? Will you continue to let circumstances dictate your faithfulness? Or will you trust God? Whether it be for the first time or the, the thousandth time. Right? Will you trust him? Let's pray together. God, um, thank you first for uh, just for what we can see in your word um, and the stories that we can read to see your faithfulness um, throughout scripture and throughout history and throughout throughout the lives of people like David and through what, what you did through Jesus on the cross, we can see all of the ways that your faithfulness plays out. We can see your promises fulfilled and we can see that you can be trusted. And I, I pray that uh, in the in the days that, that are coming after today, uh, when all of us are faced with the decision throughout every single day of, of do we trust you and what you say or do we trust in our own voices, trust in the voices of those around us more than we trust you? Do we let our circumstances dictate our faithfulness? Do we let... Do we let the things in life that toss us around um, determine where we go or do we, do we let the anchor of your truth hold us fast? I pray that we, that we would look to you and we would look to your promises and we would rely on your faithfulness and trust you over our circumstances just like we saw in, in David's life today. But also in the times that we don't, as we're going to continue to see through David's life, how he does not always, um, that your faithfulness continues, that, that you still continue to pursue us and extend your love to us, and that in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you stay faithful. And we thank you for that. And I just, um, like, like we talked about, if it's the thousandth time today that we need to give our trust to you, I pray that we can do that, that you would stir in people's hearts to, to turn those things over to you, the things that we're holding back. But I also pray for, for those in the room who, who have not given their trust to you at any point, that your spirit would stir in them, um, that you would fill their hearts with a desire for you and a knowledge of you and an understanding of the faithfulness that you have shown us, and that that would be worth pursuing and worth, worth trusting in because you can be trusted. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to, to do that, to pursue you and to trust in your faithfulness in our lives. 
thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.